Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 877. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Join with me, please, in a word of prayer. Father, your word tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we're asking that you would use the preaching of the word of Christ, to affect faith in us today? Would you bring saving faith to those who remain yet outside of Christ this morning? And would you please use this means you've ordained, this simple means of the preaching of the word of Christ, would you attend the preaching of the word today by your all-powerful Holy Spirit to... Move us along in faith who have believed on Christ. You've promised to transform us into his image, to renew the image of God on us. Please use your word as part of that work this morning. We're desperate for you, O God, to visit us by your spirit as the word is preached. Would you please do it in Jesus' name? Amen. Have you realized... How many businesses that you interact with these days or how many apps on your phone that give you the opportunity to be watchful? So you get a pizza delivery and you can watch on your Domino's app as the little car drives along the roads and gets closer and closer to your house. Same thing with DoorDash. I guess people who are waiting for food delivery want a lot of real-time updates on what's going on. But even when you order from from Amazon or some other place online, I ordered a book about a week and a half ago, and I'm really eager for that book to get here. It's it's a commentary on the First London Baptist Confession of 1644, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for this book. I'm not home a lot during the day, but if I were home on the day that I checked its tracking and I saw that the book was out for delivery, I know what I'd be doing. I'd be keeping my eyes peeled for the delivery truck. And a lot of you are the same way. This is not just me, okay? I know know this is going on. You see something that you ordered is out for delivery, and you kind of give attention throughout your day for when the FedEx truck or the UPS truck or the mail truck pulls up. There's really no hiding when we're watching and waiting for something that we desire very much. We give off telltale signs, don't we? when we're waiting for something that we're desperate for, pizza or books or whatever else. 
So what's the telltale sign that you're desperate for Jesus' return? What's a dead giveaway that you are regularly thinking about when the Son of Man will come again? Jesus says there's a tell. Do you want to know what it is? Do you want to know what Jesus is going to be looking for when he comes back? Do you want to know if you could be caught red-handed, eagerly awaiting the day of the Lord? Well, then listen to the Lord Jesus' word to us from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8 this morning that our brother Calvin read for us just a moment ago. Now, in your sermon outline, and if you didn't get an outline, you can find the outline at cmcvermont.org gather. In your sermon outline, I've given you as Roman numeral 1 the text that I preached last week, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. And that's because what I want you to see is that today's text is really a continuation of what Jesus was talking about last week. He was talking about in our text last week, he's talking about the arrival of his kingdom, the coming of the Son of Man. In fact, in last week's text, the Lord refers to the days or the day of the Son of Man four times. And in our text this week, it ends with Jesus asking, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That helps you to see that in our text this week, we're still dealing with the idea that we were thinking about last week, namely the return of the Son of Man. But just so you stay oriented as we go through Luke, I want to set our text today in the broader context What's going on with all this teaching about Jesus' return? You know, back in chapter 17, Jesus is teaching about forgiveness and humble service and gratitude for salvation from the one Samaritan leper. And then all of a sudden, beginning in verse 20, he's talking about his return. And you could think, well, what's this all about? Well, don't forget that the banner over this section of Luke's gospel that we're in right now, the so-called journey narrative that starts in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when Luke says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and the cross, and that goes all the way into chapter 19 when Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem for his triumphal entry. Those chapters, chapter 9 through chapter 19, chronicle Jesus' teaching and his activities as he's journeying to Jerusalem. And the banner over this big section of Luke is the kingdom of God. So you remember that we've been getting parables about the kingdom. We've been getting teaching about what kingdom people are like and what they aren't like. We've been getting teaching about how sinners come into the kingdom. We've been getting warnings about being shut out of the kingdom and so on. And so remember... How does Jesus' teaching about his return back in chapter 17 and verse 20 begin? It begins with the Pharisees asking, when's the kingdom of God coming? So I'm just wanting you to see that this teaching from chapter 17 verse 20 through chapter 18 verse 8 isn't some radically new topic. It's about the arrival of the king of the kingdom. And so this section, 1720 to 18.8, fits into this larger portion of Luke's gospel that we've been in since last fall, chapter 9, verse 51, into chapter 19. And that big portion of the gospel of Luke is about the kingdom of God. Just wanting you to have some context for where we are. 
Now to our text, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. On your outline, I'm calling 18, 1 through 8, a parabolic application of the Son of Man's sudden return. So maybe you'll remember that I said to you at the end of last week's sermon that that there's yet another application point of Jesus' teaching that he gave us in 1720 to 37 about his return. And I take this parable today, the parable in 181 to 8, as an application of what Jesus teaches in the previous chapter about his second coming at the end of the age. Now, sometimes with parables, you don't get the punchline or the upshot until the end. You know, I'm thinking, for example, of the parable of the wedding feast that Jesus gives at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees back in chapter 14. Maybe you remember that parable. Jesus is teaching them about lower seats and more honorable seats. And that parable ends with this teaching. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You don't get the so what of that parable until the end. But we don't have to wait until the end of this parable today to get the upshot. Luke gives it to us right out of the gate. You can't miss it. Do you see it here in verse 1 of Luke chapter 18? And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, of course, it's good to pray always. It's good not to lose heart. But this parable isn't beckoning us to prayer in general. Jesus tells this parable because he's teaching that his followers ought always to pray a certain prayer and not lose heart about that prayer not yet having been answered. And what is it that this parable is going to be beckoning you and me to pray for? Well, it's what we've been talking about for now the past two Sundays, the return of Christ. That's the reason for this parable, so that you, believer, will always pray for Christ's return and not lose heart in praying, though that prayer has not yet been answered. That's the upshot of the parable in verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 5, we see the parable's content. Beginning in verse 2, we get to the parable itself, and we're introduced to a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. That's a pretty vivid description, isn't it? We get a clue here that we've got a bad guy on our hands. Maybe you remember that back in chapter 12, Jesus tells his followers, Do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will tell you, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, Jesus says. Well, this judge doesn't. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect men. Now, over against that devilish judge is a widow. And verse 3 says she's got some adversary, some enemy, some accuser who keeps pestering her and tormenting her somehow. Luke has a special place in his heart for widows, it seems. They're they're all over the place in this book. Back in chapter 2, you've got the widow Anna. She's a prophetess who encounters the baby Jesus at the temple. And she praises God and tells others of the arrival of the baby who she says will be the redemption of Jerusalem. 
In chapter 7, Luke records Jesus' raising from the dead, a widow's son. In chapter 20, Jesus is going to condemn the scribes among the Jewish religious leaders. He's going to condemn them for, among other things, devouring widows' houses. In Luke 21, a poor widow is said by the Lord to have given more to the temple offering box with her two coins that together don't even equal a half hour's wage than the rich who put their abundant gifts in. Why is Luke talking about widows so much, including in this parable of our Lord that he records today? It's because to be a widow in this time and place was to be consigned almost certainly to a life of poverty if this woman didn't have any help from family or from her fellow Jews. And so widows serve in Luke's gospel as an excellent picture for us of the desperation and humility and empty-handedness of those who come by grace to belong to the kingdom of God. So we have a widow, and Jesus says in verse 3 that this widow kept coming to this wicked judge for justice against her adversary. Then look at verses 4 and 5. The judge initially refuses to grant her request, even in the face of her persistence. This judge's inner monologue is kind of funny. It reminds us of what kind of despicable, evil character we're dealing with. Though I neither fear God nor respect man. But despite his wicked unrighteousness, the judge eventually relents, doesn't he? He sort of has this mindset, this widow keeps bothering me. If I don't give her what she's asking for, I know she's just going to keep on coming and keep coming like she's done already. She's going to put me in an early grave. I'll just give her justice if only to shut her up. That's the judge's mindset. Then in verse 6, before Jesus begins working the lessons of this parable, he calls on his audience to hear what the unrighteous judge says. The judge relented. He gave the widow the justice that she was relentlessly pleading for. And now the Lord Jesus is going to reason for us in verse 7. If this unrighteous judge will give justice to this widow, if a judge who's unjust, who neither fears God nor respects men, will eventually cave in just to get this lady off his back, won't God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is reasoning. If the unrighteous and unjust judge, the unrighteous, unjust judge, will reluctantly give justice to the widow, what do you think is going to be done by the judge who's, the foundation of whose throne is righteousness and justice? <clears throat> what do you think he's going to do for his elect to cry to him day and night? who persist in their pleas for justice from their adversary. Jesus says it's obvious what God is going to do. You see in verse 8, he's not going to delay long over them. That is, he's not going to keep putting off his elect, unlike the 
unrighteous judge who kept putting off the widow. God's going to give justice to his elect speedily. That idea of his giving justice to his elect speedily, that fits in with what Jesus was saying back in chapter 17, verses 20 to 37 about the need to live with an ever readiness for the Son of Man's return. And then Jesus ends by asking at the end of verse 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now what does Jesus mean here when he asks if he'll find faith at his return? He's not talking generically about faith. Faith in this context is specifically living with prayerful watchfulness for Christ's return. The faith that Jesus is wondering if he's going to find at his return is belief that he's coming back. Belief that it could be at any time. Living with readiness for his return. It reminds me of the servants in the parable in Luke chapter 12. These servants who always keep their lamps burning. They're always waiting for the master's return. They're always looking for his return. They don't fall asleep while they await the master's return. They don't gorge themselves and get drunk and fall asleep because they're sure that the master is going to continue to delay in coming. Those who will have the faith that the Son of Man is going to be looking for on the day of his return are those who live ready for his appearing, those who love his appearing, as Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Short parable, short text, but that gives us some good time to think about how to make use of it. How does saving faith respond to this parable? First, brother and sister, I want you to recognize your need for justice. That's what the widow was after in her dogged pursuit of this wicked judge. She wanted justice against her adversary, verse 3 says. And Jesus promises in verse 7 what? That God will give justice to his elect. And so I'm wondering, brother and sister, if you recognize that you need justice. The world is filled with only two kinds of people. Christ followers... Or enemies of Christ. And if a person is Christ's enemy, that makes that person, dear Christian, your enemy. Now before you go get pitchforks and torches, Jesus says in Luke 7 to love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you. But I'm saying, Christian, that you won't pray desperately for Christ's return until you see that there's a cosmic battle that's taking place. Now, Christ has won that battle with his death and his resurrection. The outcome isn't hanging in the balance. Christ has won. Satan has lost. But the fight is still playing itself out. Justice hasn't yet been fully and finally brought to bear on God's enemies. And until the Lord returns, the Bible says that you have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone who to, uh, to devour. And all those in Satan's dominion are your adversaries too because they oppose your God and they oppose his gospel whether they realize it or not. 
So I'm wanting you to see your need, Christian, like this widow, for justice. I want you to see that things have not yet been set to right. You need to recognize that there are still spiritual enemies of God's people and physical enemies of God's people who look to thwart the advance of the gospel and to thwart the advance of the kingdom of God. You still need justice to be done and you ought to be praying persistently for justice to be done. So I'm asking you, brother and sister, are you desperate as you see this culture's wickedness to see things set to right? Are you desperate to see the books balanced and to see God's justice be satisfied? Be clear that it's not you who's been wronged, ultimately, it's God. He's the only one, ultimately, against whom injustice has been done. But as you look at the state of things in this world, are you desperate to see justice meted out? If you are, then turn that into prayer for Christ's return because it's only when the Son of Man returns that we're going to see justice. Let that stir in you a desperation for justice. There's a wrong way to react to recognizing your need for justice that I want to warn you against. You could go around with an attitude toward unbelievers. Oh, you just wait. You're going to get yours. Yes, all the scores are going to be settled by Christ at his return, but you leave the vengeance to him, Paul says in Romans 12. In fact, the reason why you can love your enemies and react to their injustice toward you with compassion is because you're deserving of the very same justice that they're going to get unless they repent and believe the gospel. The fiery destruction that will eternally come onto God's enemies is the justice that you deserve for your sins, dear Christian. The only reason why I can exhort you to persistently plead with God for justice is because you are not going to receive his justice if you're in his son. And you're not going to receive what your sins deserve because Christ received it in your place. We can plead with God like this widow to be just because his justice was meted out on his son when we were the guilty ones. Guilty Vile and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, as a wrath satisfaction by His blood to be received by faith. And God did this, Paul says, to show His righteousness. That is, God satisfied his wrath in the death of his perfect son on the cross, and he did it to show his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just in forgiving our sins because the Lord Jesus endured God's justice toward our sins in our place. And so now you, believer, can plead with God for justice like this widow is doing. You can plead with him for justice because Jesus got your justice and your place and now you're accounted his righteousness. You're justified now and forever because God's righteous justice fell on the Lamb of God who bore your sin. And So part of how we make use of this text 
is to recognize our need for justice. Do you? Do you recognize that you yet need justice against your adversary like this widow did? Do you recognize that the justice that you need isn't going to come in its fullness until Christ's return? Do you recognize that you can pray for justice only because justice first fell on Christ at Calvary in your place? Second, saving faith responds to this text with persistence in prayer for the Son of Man's return. Are you desperate for Christ's return? Do you greatly desire Christ's return? Let me give you a good diagnostic for how you're doing with that. Look at your prayer life. You've probably heard that you can track where your heart and where your mind are by looking at how you spend your money and your time, and that's true. But you can also track where your heart and mind are by looking at what you're praying for. If you're only praying for Christ's return when we say the Lord's Prayer together each Sunday morning, then there's some room for you to grow in being desperate for his return and being desirous for his return. Do you lack desperation for his return because things are pretty good for you here? Have you made it your aim, and whether or not you've achieved this aim is irrelevant, but have you made it your aim to be as comfortable here as possible in regard to gathering possessions, in regard to having people like you so that you don't identify with Christ or risk stirring the pot by sharing the gospel or inviting someone to church? Are you trying to make life as comfortable here as possible? That works against this desperation that would cause us to pray persistently for Christ's return. Our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world have a leg up on us in this area. I think of the Christians in Turkey and the elders are meeting tomorrow night and we're going to be talking about our first quarter offering and uh, it's easy for me to imagine that we'll give a portion of the first quarter offering to help our brothers and sisters who are suffering in Turkey after not one but two earthquakes. They're persecuted there, they're suffering from so-called natural disasters. The persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world endure gives them a lot of opportunities to pray desperately for justice against their adversaries and to pray for the coming of the Son of Man. We're at a disadvantage in some ways because of our lack of persecution. We don't yet have persecution right in our face that threatens our livelihoods or that threatens our lives. And so we really have to work in this culture to feel our desperate need for justice and to feel our desperate need for Christ's return. I think our problem, saints, is that we often don't feel desperate at all for Christ's return. When would you say was the last time you felt desperate for Christ's return? In fact, if we're honest, we'd rather Jesus keep waiting just a little bit until we get married or until we have children or until we see our grandchildren. 
or until those children or grandchildren come to faith. So far from being desperate for his return, I think sometimes if he asked us when we wanted him to come, we'd tell him to just wait back a little bit until a few more things fall into place for us. But this, this widow's life in the parable was a constant reminder for her of her need for justice against her adversary. And so I want to ask you, believer, if you recognize that growing in desperation for Christ's return is an area of improvement for you, I want to ask you, are you aiming to live your life in such a way that you kind of get insulated from your need for Christ's return? Can you look at your life and see that you're just, you're kind of trying to put together a life that wouldn't give you much of an occasion to feel desperate for Christ's return? The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart is also, but I think it's true of where your prayers are. Where your prayers are, there your heart is also. And are you praying for Christ's return? Are you sensing your need for justice to be done? Are you desperate, praying persistently for Christ's return? Don't trip over the fact that this parable has been given so that you ought always to pray for Christ's return and not lose heart. Maybe you're thinking, well, Mitch, why am I supposed to pray for something that I know is going to happen? I've read the back of the Bible. I know Jesus is going to come back. And so why is it that God's telling me to pray for something that he's already said he's going to do? Well, that's a very good question. Keep your marker in Luke chapter 18 and turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. If you're not very familiar with how the Bible holds together, feel free to use one of those pew Bibles and you'll find Daniel chapter 9 on page 746. Why in the world would we pray desperately and persistently for something God's already said he's going to do? Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. In the first year of Darius, <clears throat> the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. What's Daniel saying in these verses? Daniel says that one day, during the first year of the reign of the Persian king Darius, Daniel's reading the word of the Lord. <coughs> He's reading the word of the Lord that came to the prophet Jeremiah. That's in our Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And Daniel reads that Jeremiah prophesied a 70-year period of captivity for the Jews in Babylon. You get that? Daniel's reading the prophet Jeremiah and realizes that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Jeremiah prophesied a 70-year period of captivity for the Jews in Babylon. That's what Daniel's reading. 
Now let's turn over to what Daniel was reading. Go with me from Daniel to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25. Go from Daniel left, past Ezekiel and Lamentations, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25. That's on page 652 if you're using a pew Bible. Jeremiah chapter 25, and let's pick up the reading at verse 11. This is the word of the Lord that came through Jeremiah the prophet. Verse 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. He's talking about uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Verse 12. Then, after 70 years are completed, I, that's the Lord, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah that the exile to Babylon is going to be 70 years, and then the Lord's going to punish the king of Babylon, he's going to punish the nation of Babylon, And we know that punishment happened. Because back in Daniel chapter 9, how is Daniel marking time? Not with the reign of a Babylonian king, but with the reign of a Persian king. Because Persia has conquered Babylon and has begun to send the Jewish exiles back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Just as Jeremiah the prophet foretold by the Lord. That's what Daniel's reading when he writes in Daniel chapter 9. He's reading what we find here in Jeremiah 25. So go back with me now to Daniel 9. Again, that's page 746 in your pew Bible. Daniel's reading in Jeremiah... Daniel realized that the 70-year period of Babylonian exile about which Jeremiah prophesied is coming to a close. And does Daniel read Jeremiah and see that the time Jeremiah foretold has arrived and says, Whew, glad that's over. Time to head back to Jerusalem. No. When Daniel sees that the prophecy is being fulfilled, he starts praying. Daniel sees a prophecy, he believes the prophecy, he sees that the time for the prophecy to come to pass has arrived, and he does what? He prays. Beginning in verse 3, do you see it? Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Prayers for justice, you could say. Desperate prayers for justice. Skip down to verse 16 of Daniel 9 here. Let's read Daniel petition the Lord for the things that the Lord already said through Jeremiah that he's going to do. Daniel prays, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, we're in Luke 18 today, so what am I doing taking you between Daniel and Jeremiah? It's because I want you to see that the right response to seeing God promise something in the Bible that's yet to come is to ask God for that thing. Do you think Jesus doubted that God would raise him from the dead? I don't think Jesus doubted his resurrection for a nanosecond. And yet, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To whom? To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus wasn't confused about the fact that the resurrection was promised, and yet that he was praying for his resurrection. I love how John Calvin talks about prayer. In his institutes, Calvin says, quote, To know God as the master and bestower of all good things, who invites us to request them of him, and still not go to him and not ask of him, this would be of as little profit as for a man to neglect a treasure buried and hidden in the earth after it had been pointed out to him. We see that to us nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord, which we are not also bidden to ask of him in prayers. So true is it that we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which our faith has gazed upon, end quote. So there's no incongruity at all between knowing that God's going to do a thing, like sending back his son, and praying for God to do that thing. In fact, as we go through our life, brothers and sisters, don't you and I offer so many prayers that we have no assurance are going to be granted? That we ought to rush to pray prayers that we have every assurance will certainly be answered. And though, as I said, I think this parable is pushing us toward offering a very specific kind of prayer, namely praying for Christ's return when justice is going to be done, take note of what the Lord tells us about the Father's character in this parable. The Father is not like the unrighteous judge. The Father is just and righteous. Our God is just And righteous, brother and sister, this unrighteous judge finally begrudgingly heard the request of the widow, but your father, Christian, gladly and eagerly hears your request because you're in his beloved son with whom he's well pleased. If you are a Christian, you're among his elect, and the Bible says that he cares for you. And the Bible says that he can do anything. That's a pretty dynamic duo. If he could do everything and didn't care for you, you ought to be shaking in your boots. 
And if he cared for you, but couldn't do everything, he's not really much help, is he? But our God, Christian, cares for you, and he can do anything. Hallelujah. That's a powerful combination. And that God says to his children, tell me your requests. So I'm hoping that this parable is going to move you along in being more prayerful, being more motivated to present your requests to this loving and caring and attentive and just and righteous God. Take advantage of corporate times of prayer. Really lean in on your community group's prayer and share night. Come ready to pray. Come eager to pray. Come to women's R&R rejoicing and requesting. Come to men's prayer. Pray individually. Pray corporately. But pray for heaven's sake. And let me encourage you to carve out space for praying. Now, I think I'm like the, the oldest you can be and still be a millennial. I was born in 1982. I'm 40. I look 60. I'm 40. <laughs> but part of what it means to be a millennial, and I think the generations that come after, is that we just really don't like any silence. Whether it's taking a shower or shaving or washing dishes or driving or whatever, it's a podcast or it's music or it's streaming this or that thing. Let me encourage you to carve out space for praying. Turn off the show. Turn off the movie or the music or the podcast. It's possible to drive in silence. (laughs) It's possible to shower in silence or to make a meal, to wash the dishes in silence. Let me say, if this is a struggle for you, don't look to fill every second with noise. Give yourself space to pray. Space to pray prayers like this one today that you know are going to be answered eventually. And prayers that you don't know are going to be answered, but that you do know are being heard by a merciful and gracious God who loves you and cares for you. So pray, Christian, for Christ's return. That's when justice is going to come. That's when your adversaries will be eternally put down. That's when peace will come. That's when sin and the curse will be no more. That's when you'll see your Savior and you'll at last be like your Savior. Pray persistently. Pray hopefully. Pray eagerly for the return of the Son of Man and pray with your eyes open, ever watching. Because the Lord has promised one day and today might be that day to answer that prayer and to give justice to his elect speedily. I'm going to pray to close and then we're going to pray again the prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. The first three petitions of which, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven are prayers where we're asking, oh God, send back your son. Father, thank you for this word from the Lord Jesus today. 
Oh God, help us to be people who are desperate for Christ's return. Help us not to be comforted in this world and help us not to be comfortable in this world. Help us to see our need for justice against our adversaries and to plead with you regularly for it. Thank you, O God, that you make yourself available to us when we ought to have your face forever turned away from us because of our sin. You've brought us into your very presence through your Son. And so, Father, we do want to pray for your Son's return by praying the prayer that he taught his disciples, which is, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.